Robert Furrow, and this is TruthQuest Podcast. This is our Q&A where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. Our desire is to know what God's Word says so we can know what to believe, rightly dividing the Word of God. The Bible tells us that all Scripture is given by the inspiration of God, is profitable for reproof, for correction, for doctrine, that the man of God could be thoroughly equipped for every good work that God has given him. We know that God's word is alive and active, that it will not return back void, but it will accomplish those things that it was sent out to accomplish. So we want to rightly divide the word of God. It is our authority, and we believe that it is inerrant in the things that it teaches. So we'll take time to take questions from you that we might be able to look into the Word of God and what they say. If you have any questions, you can write the word question down, and then you can write out your question, reread it a couple of times, make sure that it makes sense, and then go ahead and submit it. Our first question today comes from a question that was asked last week, and it had to do with generational curses. And it's been a while since I made myself familiar with the passages that talk about generational curses, so I thought I would go ahead and do that this week and then come back and address the issue. Uh, So I've got a couple of verses here that I want to show you. Uh, First of all, good to have you guys with us here today, by the way. So here we have um, in, let me see here, sorry, let me go ahead and get this out of the way. There we go. All right, so here we have Exodus 20, 4 through 6, and this is going to be familiar because it is the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, is the heart of the law. And so God says about make about idols, you shall make for yourself, uh, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above on the earth beneath, that is in the water under the earth, and you shall not bow down to them, nor serve them. So the prohibition is against making an image of something and then bowing down to it. Remember in the tabernacle, there were all kinds of images, even on the top of the Ark of the Covenant. There were cherubim that were, were, their wings covered the mercy seat. It's the prohibition against bowing down before them and worshiping them. He says, for I am the Lord your God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. So there's the section. Now, first of all, this is about the law, and it's about, it's in the law, and it's about idols, idol worship. And it says, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children of the third or the fourth generation. But then in contrast to that, showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. So God contrast the few with the many of those who hate him and those who love him and how much greater his grace is. But this has caused some to believe and to teach that we are under curses. So I could be under a curse. Now, there's, a, there's a sense in which we are. We're under the curses of Genesis, still under them. They haven't been set free yet. Jesus became a curse for us upon the tree so that we are in him now. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. But the idea that that my dad could have sinned and that could be passed down to me, I think is appealing to people because that means it's not me, it was my dad. I'm just a victim here. I have this generational curse that's upon my life. 
And I think, and, and if you can pray for me, or you want to go through a, a deliverance service, that you can pray to get rid of generational curses in people's lives. And then what does that do for the passages in the New Testament that tell me that if I walk in the Spirit, I will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. And that if I sow to the Spirit, from the Spirit, I'll reap life. If I sow to the flesh, from the flesh, I will reap corruption. Was God saying in this passage that he was going to just pass down the, um, like, uh, the consequences of sin to the third and fourth generation? Or because my dad sinned in a certain way, does that mean now I'm going to sin in that certain way, which is the way people read it? And I'm not sure that's exactly what God meant here. I do. We do know that you can inherit certain things. My dad was had a pretty bad temper. My dad was bad-tempered. And I learned that probably from him. And I had to fight that when I was younger too. I just kind of fly off the handle all of a sudden. And I had to fight it because my dad was that way, but probably because I lived with him. And maybe that's what God, God is saying. We see our fathers, our, 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 our parents doing things, and then we end up repeating the same things that they do. Now, let's just say that God is saying here that visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children of the third and fourth generation means that if your dad was involved in idolatry, that you're going to be involved in idolatry to the third or the fourth generation, that there's a curse on your family line and you're going to be involved in it. What about those who repent? Listen to what God says here in Ezekiel 18, 14. If, however, he begats a son, this is someone who sinned and done all kinds of bad things. If, however, he begats a son who sees all the sins which his father has done and considers but does not do likewise, so this is a son, his dad has done a bunch of sin, but he's considered and he doesn't do likewise, who has withdrawn his hand from the poor, meaning he was a stealing from the poor, and not received usury or increase, but has executed my judgments and walked in my statutes, he shall not die for the iniquity of his father. So a son can see his father doing certain things, decide he's not going to do it, and he is not going to die for the sins of his father. He shall surely live. As for his father, because he cruelly oppressed, robbed his brother by violence and did what is not good among the people, behold, he shall die for his iniquity. So it seems here God gives us an opportunity to respond in a way that we see our fathers doing certain things and not follow in those footsteps. Now, again, this is the Old Testament. Now, I got another passage for you. This is out of Jeremiah. It says, in those days, they shall, no, uh, they shall say no more. The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. That's the idea that our fathers did something and now we're suffering the consequences for it. But everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Every man who eats the sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. God's saying, I'm dealing with individuals. It doesn't mean that there might not be some kind of connection, but we're each responsible for what we do and we don't have to do what our parents told them to do. Now, when you become a Christian, what happens? Remember that this passing the, the, the iniquity on from the fathers to the children was under the law, the heart of the law and the Ten Commandments. So here it says, Christ has redeemed us from the curses of the law. This is Galatians 3.13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. The law, if we sinned in any one point, then we were condemned. We had to go make a sacrifice. But if there's a connection between the law and what our parents do and what we do, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Maybe we haven't been redeemed from the curse of Adam or the curse of Eve, 
but we are redeemed from the, and, and the earth is still under that curse, but we're redeemed from the curse of the law. It says, having become a curse for us, as it is written, cursed is everyone who, who is, um, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. And so Jesus was hung on a tree for us and, and died for us that we could be set free. And if we are in Christ, we have the mercy of a thousand generations. And, and we want to be careful that we don't use these verses. It's like, it's like demonology. You're demonized. That's why you're doing the things that you're doing. So you've got to go to a deliverance service in order to be set free from these demons. My problem with that is I don't see it in Scripture. You go to the, to the Bible and you look for deliverance where it says, if someone is struggling with lust, then go and cast the demon of lust out of them. It doesn't say that. It says, walk in the Spirit and you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. But if you sow to the flesh, from the flesh you will reap corruption. You reap what you sow, taking every thought captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ that we might be able to overcome every stronghold, looking for the way of escape out of temptation. If, if indeed my main problem in my sin and behavioral issues is generational curses, then don't you think somewhere in the New Testament or in the book of Acts we would be directed to deal with the generational curses. In fact, it's not a biblical term. God just made that statement. I'll pass the iniquities of the father onto the children of the third and fourth generation, which people have called generational curses. And don't you think also that if, if I needed to have a demon cast out of me, otherwise I have this particular struggle in my life, that that spiritual warfare would have been set up in the scriptures. There'd be something in the epistles we're given the book of Acts as an example. We're given the epistles as directions on how to live and interact with one another. Our main problems are feeding the flesh. If we feed the flesh, then from the flesh, we're gonna, we, no wonder we, we reap things. If we sow to the Spirit, from the Spirit we will reap life. All right, so uh, it's good to see you guys. Good to have you here. If you have any questions, uh, then you can submit them into the comment section below. Good to see you guys. Thank you, Keith, for being here. Uh, and let's see, we have a question from Psych Man right out of the chute. Number one, Psych Man. Um, Psych Man says, uh, question, if God healed someone, then that guy's doctor asked how he was cured, and the guy says he doesn't know, is this like really bad, like tempting God to unheal such a person? Thanks, Robert. Thanks, psych man. Um, so if I'm understanding you correct, uh, somebody's got some kind of an illness and they are healed and the doctor says, how do you know, the doctor says, I don't know how you got healed and you don't say anything, but you think it was God that healed you. Is that tempting God to unheal us? Um, first of all, I think if the doctor says, if you've prayed to be healed and you get healed and the doctor says, I don't know how you've been healed, you should go ahead and glorify God. <laughs> you should say, well, I prayed for this and I believe God healed me. And I think that's a good thing to say. Um, and I don't think that if you, I don't know why you wouldn't, maybe you get scared when you're there, maybe you don't say it, but I don't think God's going to unheal you. I, you never see an unhealing in the Bible where someone is healed and then they're not healed. I don't think that God is like, well, you know, you didn't give me glory for it, so I'm going to, I'm going to unheal you. Um, all right, so I, I, but I do think, Psych Man, that 
we should be letting people know if something like this were to happen. Let me just read this, make sure I got it right. If God healed someone, then the guy's doctor asked him how he was cured, and the guy says he doesn't know. Yeah, so I'm assuming the guy knew that God healed him and, and said he didn't know. I don't think it would be tempting God. I think he should be telling the doctor especially that he's, uh, that he's been healed. Um, I've talked a lot about Craig Keener's book, Miracles Today, uh, and uh, Lee Strobel's book um, that is um, A Case for Miracles. And they, they document a lot of miracles that have happened. So we see that miracles are happening today. And I think that God allows miracles that, are, that can be documented to happen in order for us to know that the supernatural takes place. Then we can look back at where a lot of miracles happen because a lot of times people will ask, well, how come there are not as many miracles happening today as there was in the Bible? Well, the book of Acts had a lot of miracles, but it seems like they faded away after a while. They were a lot in the very beginning and became less because God was attesting to the work of the apostles. And we still have miracles today in a smaller amount because God's showing us that miracles do happen so that we can believe that Jesus rose from the dead ultimately. So we know that God does do these things and there are there's stuff that happened that is that cannot be explained. Uh, so uh, we have a question from Melissa. Thank you, Psych Man, for your question. We have a question from Melissa. Melissa says, um, question, hi, Pastor. Are we required to fast like we're baptized? Thank you. Right, so you, you should be baptized. So Jesus said, go out into all the world, which means preach the gospel everywhere, and make disciples of all nations, which means we are becoming disciples of Jesus when we become Christians, and baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So we are to baptize people. And if you haven't, and, and I really believe that something happens when you are baptized. Uh, we are baptized into his death. And then we are in the likeness of his resurrection when we come out of the water. Colossians 2.12 and <clears throat> Romans chapter 6. And so if you are identifying with Christ in his death and resurrection, then that is important. The Ethiopian eunuch said, there's water what stops me from being baptized. And so part of Philip's presentation must have been to him, uh, you should be baptized. And Peter said in Acts chapter two, repent. That times of refreshing may come from the Lord. I think that was Acts chapter three, but then Acts chapter two, he says, and be baptized because of the remission of sins. Because your sins have been cleansed, then be baptized. And so it was part of the, the process of preaching the gospel. And so it's important, fasting. Jesus said, when you fast, don't fast like the Pharisees who don't comb their hair or wash their face. Then they walk around like, I'm all hungry and I've been fasting. And Jesus says, don't do that. But he did say, when you fast, not if you fast. So I do believe there are times when we are supposed to fast. Now, Jesus said, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. So we're told in communion to do it often. We're not told in fasting how often we have to do it. The, um, and fasting is something that, Melissa, if you've never done it, at the first time that you ever do it, it's especially if you're regular, to th if, you're, if you're used to three squares, then the first time that you ever do it, it's like, wow, that's, that's crazy. And I would suggest that you fast maybe, there's a few ways you could do it. You could fast breakfast 
And then the next week, on maybe the same day, you fast breakfast and lunch. And then the next day, you, you, you fast breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Or you fast breakfast, then you fast breakfast and lunch, and then you fast by just eating bread and water for dinner. You know, something that is going to allow you to, to realize, I'm okay, I can make this, I can handle this. And you, you do get used to it. So, you know, at first, you're, you're, you know, your body just, it's asking for the meal. And when you're fasting, you really want to be praying about something. I really believe it's being strict, uh, struck by something, which makes fasting easier. So if you're suddenly grieved because of something that has happened in the life of someone you love or someone you care about, and so you decide to fast and pray for them, then because you're struck by it, you don't really want to eat, which is when you're, when you, when you, when you're grieving, you don't want to eat. And so, yeah, I do believe that as Christians, we should fast. I don't think it's the same as baptism. Everyone needs to baptize. Um, Jesus said, as oft, um, Jesus said um, when you fast, so I do think we're supposed to fast. Um, but baptism seems to be connected to the statement of salvation where fasting is connected with praying and, and, and calling out to God, really getting serious about calling out to God. All right, so if you have any questions about that, you can ask more. But thank you very much <clears throat> for it. I would suggest all Christians to, to take time to fast. And like I said, just fast breakfast to start. And spend that time praying that you would normally spend in breakfast. And maybe you eat breakfast to pray anyway. All right, so we have a question from Joe. Joe, um, Joe says, question, I've submitted this first thing on Wednesday, but I didn't see it's, it was answered. Why does Proverbs refer to both understanding and wisdom as a he, as a her, or a she? Okay, yeah, I didn't see it, Joe, so thank you for reposting it here. Uh, so Proverbs is personifying wisdom. Not only does, th th there's a few other places in the Bible where certain things are personified, where something is turned into, and this is a form of literature. So, you know, you could, if you were writing a poem, you could uh, personify love, turn love into a person and write about it. Some have said that they see the, the wisdom in the book of Proverbs as being the Holy Spirit and that the Holy Spirit is referred to at times in the feminine and that the she is the Holy Spirit. Others see Jesus in it uh, when you're reading in Proverbs. Uh, and um, I, I have a tendency, I have a tendency just to read them as if they were, if wisdom were personified. I'm calling out to you from the streets. You know, listen to what I'm saying, and it will be, it will be life unto your bones. So that we want to walk in wisdom. Uh, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Uh, and then, by the way, it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of understanding as well. So um, you have both understanding and wisdom here. And the fear of the Lord is mentioned as both of those things. So understanding is understanding the scriptures and understanding life. Wisdom is knowing the right thing to do when to do it. And having a decision in front of you, I could do this or I could do that. What would be the wisest thing for you to do? So I think it's a way for us to understand and learn wisdom and understand maybe a little bit better on what biblical wisdom is. 
And that's why I think it's personified. I don't think it's the spirit and I don't think it's Jesus. Um, but you can go back and you can read those yourself and kind of make, make your own decisions on it, Joe. You can go and read the passages that personify it and go from there. Um, and if we have time, if somebody wants, if you want to put in one of the references, we'll go back and read a little bit on how it's personified. But, um, yeah, I think um, as, as far as why it's he or she and not a, or, or her and she rather than a he or him, um, I, it just, like we, like we personify a, a ship as a, as a she or a storm as a, as a she now, right? So <clears throat> I just think that that's what, I think that's what's happening there. It's just, um, it's just literature and it's a literary device. All right. Thanks, Joe. I appreciate that. So uh, we have a question from Daniel. Daniel, good to see you here. Uh, Daniel says, is there a relationship with near-death experience stories and hell? View of universal salvation, ultimate reconciliation, or is this heretical? Um, well, yeah, I think universal salvation and ultimate reconciliation, when you're talking about universalism, that people are going to die, go to hell, suffer until they repent, and then they enter into heaven. I don't see anything in the scriptures that would talk about that. And on top of that, Daniel, I don't see anything in the early church that anybody in the early church thought about it. Um, we talk about the duration of hell, and we see that it was a debate in the first 350 years of the church, and then Augustine came on the scene, and Augustine took uh, the stance of eternal conscious torment, and then it, it went for, you know, then it became part of what was the Catholic Church, and um, when the Reformation happened, uh, they never questioned any of those things. They questioned some other things, but never any of them. But universal salvation, um, ultimate reconciliation, I see as being um, wholly unbiblical. And um, uh, would it be, yeah, I, 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 see it, I see it as being unbiblical. And I think that's probably the best way to put it. Um, I don't think there is, and I do know there are people who do try to make a case for universalism. Um, but I don't. I but I but I think it's unbiblical. Um, they'll do things like, in the book of Revelation, there's people from every tongue, tribe, and language. So how do you get people from every tongue, tribe, and language that's there? So let's say it must be universalism. They they die. They eventually make it up into heaven. However, remember that we've got children that that die in every tongue, tribe, and nation, and children are innocent. Jeremiah chapter 19. God talks about the slaughter of the innocents. God says if they don't know their right hand from their left. And so that's how you could get people from every tongue, tribe, and nation without there being universalism. All right. Thank you, Daniel, for your question. I, uh, I appreciate that. Um, we have a question from Gabriel. Gabriel, good to see you. Gabriel says, question, being that you were from a Methodist church, is there a certain church that we are called to go to? Or is it just as long as they follow scripture, line by line, verse by verse? Uh, thanks, Gabriel. I appreciate that. Uh, I, think, I think sectarianism is somewhat carnal. Now, what I mean by that, Gabriel, is when we go, 
I'm Methodist, I'm Lutheran, I'm Baptist, I'm Assembly of God, I'm Calvary Chapel. We, when we become into whatever it is, whatever, and, and, and we should like the church we're going to, don't get me wrong, but the church that you go to should uplift Jesus and it ought to be about Christ and really living for him. And I, I do like Calvary Chapel. I do. I like, I mean, that's the reason that I'm a Calvary Chapel is I like it. I agree with the, with the tenets of Calvary Chapel and the distinctions of Calvary Chapel. But I think the more <clears throat> sectarian you get, the more carnal it is. And Paul talked about this in 1 Corinthians where he said, I wish I could talk to you as spiritual, but you're not. You are carnal. For one says, I'm of Paul, and another one says, I'm of Apollos. Uh, and he says, you are not spiritual. You are carnal. And some of you say, I'm of Christ. So just like there are some who say, uh, I'm, 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 we're of Christ. We aren't any denomination. The Church of Christ, which has certain cult-like issues, claims that they're the, the Church of Christ. Why would you go to another church when you could go to the Church of Christ? But Paul talks about that being sectarian as well. Look at, um, look at this passage here. So uh, Paul says here, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you speak the same thing and that there be no divisions among you. So God doesn't like this whole idea of divisions, but that be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, so he rats them out who told him, and um, that there are contentions among you. Now I say that each of you says, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized into the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you. And then he goes on to talk about it. But he talks about them being carnal and not being spiritual because there's divisions among them. So what's happened? There are a ton of divisions that are out there. Doesn't mean that we can't go to a church that is Methodist or Lutheran or whatever it is that we decide to go to. But I believe that, yes, first of all, Gabriel, it needs to be a church that is biblical. What you want to look at is the Apostles' Creed. And you can just take time to look that up. It gives you the creeds of the what are the main things and make sure that a church has in it the Apostles' Creed. Now, line by line, verse by verse, that's something Calvary Chapel does. We go through the Bible. There, I'm sure there are other churches that do that, but Calvary Chapel is known for it. We go through books of the Bible. That's what we do. And right now we're in Revelation on Wednesday night and we're in Luke on, in, on the weekend. Um, but I do believe, um, I was trying to think of who said it. Um, somebody like Moody or, or um, Spurgeon said, the more spiritual, those that I see that are the most spiritual are those who are least concerned with denominations. And I think that there is some truth to that. That when we get so caught up in denominations rather than Christ, we become sectarian like the Corinthians were and they were carnal when they did it. And there, there are some people that just will not, you know, follow anything of it unless it's, it's their church and that's problematic. Okay, so thank you, Gabriel, for your question. I appreciate that. 
and uh, you, I'll take a follow-up if somebody didn't get that quite right, by the way. So Jari says, I still know some people that cling to prosperity movement and believe in healing and um, uh, generalization, uh, uh, gener- yeah, uh, uh, blessings, generational blessings. If I'm saved, my son will be saved. How should I respond? Thanks. Yeah, um, I do know that the Bible says, raise up your child in the way they should go. When they are old, they won't depart. Now, is that a pro? It is in Proverbs. Is that a proverb or is it a promise? If it's a proverb, it means raise your children in the way of the Lord. And for the most part, when they're old, they won't depart. If it's a promise, it means that they won't depart. I, um, I, if, if I had friends who were still well, let me just tell you how I responded to friends that I had who were in the prosperity movement when I was first exposed to it and I realized that it was wrong, okay? We had good, solid conversations without attacking each other. And I realized how much they twisted scripture by my good, solid conversations. Like I remember talking to him and saying, look, Paul had a thorn in the flesh and he prayed three times and God didn't remove it. And he said, go back and read it. It says, my grace is sufficient for you. So what God was telling him is, you don't have to ask me to be healed. You can just speak into existence the healing that you want. And I realized how much they twisted and manipulated scripture. Another thing that was said was, you know, if Mary and Joseph got Jesus, that Jesus came into their lives and all of a sudden wise men gave them gold and you'll get gold when, you know, when you invite Jesus into your life. And you realize how much they are twisting scripture. But for me, it just becomes clear that if someone is teaching godliness as a means of financial gain, withdraw yourself from them. So they should not be in that teaching. And um, other scriptures they twist. Uh, Third John chapter one: Above all things, I would that you would prosper and be in good health. That's that's John writing to his friend Gaius, and it's his greeting. Like I might say, if I hadn't seen you in a while, Jari, I hope things are going really well for you. Uh, um, my beloved Gaius, above all things, I would that you would prosper and be in good health. And then they quote it as if it's not, they don't leave, put the Gaius part in there. And then they quote it. So I would prayerfully have conversations with them. Um, I would, I would, um, Jari, have you read the book Tactics by Craig Kokel? So that's a really good book to read when you're wondering about how to have conversations with somebody on someone that you disagree with. And he does a great job of saying that, you know, some if, if you're hanging out with a friend and, and um, you say, I feel like a cult's coming on, and they say to you, well, don't confess that, you'll get it. That you could say things like, what do you mean by that? You get them to really solidify their position. Where, where do you get that in scripture? Where does the, the Bible say about that? So that rather than being, I don't think the Bible says that, and automatically having tension between you, you can ask genuinely, where, where do you get that from? See, because I would be interested in someone who is in the prosperity movement now, I'd be interested in what passages they use to justify their belief that could take them away from what clearly is said in 1 Timothy chapter 6. So, um, I like that Craig Kokel says in the book Tactics, if, if anybody gets mad, you've lost. 
If they get mad, if you get mad. So that means you have a conversation and you're waiting for them to put pieces on the table to be able to show them that things may be wrong. So in other words, if they say something like, um, well, I just believe that if whatever we confess, we're going to get. And now you can use that. You can say, well, if whatever you confess, you're going to get, isn't that like the, the, the New Age movement? And where in the Bible does it say that? So now you can actually talk to them about what they brought up without getting them angry because they brought it up. He says they put the piece on the table, so then you can talk to them. So I would suggest, it's, it's um, the first part of the book goes pretty quick. Um, it gets kind of lengthy um, after a while. And my only concern about, about the book tactics is that we could take it as being manipulation. Like, I've got these tactics now that I've learned and I'm going to manipulate people to talk about what I want to talk about and go, instead of using them to genuinely have a conversation with someone that you disagree with. So, Jari, I think that that could be helpful. All right. So, uh, again, good to see you guys. If you have a question, then you can write the word question down and then go ahead and uh, put it into the comment section below. You can actually add the references as well and we'll be able to look up the references. In fact, I kind of prefer to get the references because we can take a chance to go and look at them. A lot of times, we can get a lot just from the references uh, that we have. All right? So, um, Jari has a follow-up on Daniel's near-death experience question. Follow-up on Daniel, why is each near-death in hell different from each person? Some see literal fire, others see consciousness, um, um, conscious torment, etc. Here's the truth. Near-death experiences have all kinds of different experiences. So, when you start to read the different things that people have during near-death experiences, you will find that there, there's all kinds of different things that they see and believe. So, it's not what they see. So, a Buddhist might see Buddha. Um, a Hindu might see something that is, that's connected to Hinduism. A person who doesn't believe in a hell might see a bright light. A person who believes in hell might see hell. Those all could be some kind of a dream-like state that we're in. Uh, we could enter into a dream-like state before we die. So that's not the power of near-death experiences. The power of near-death experiences is that there are supernatural things that happen around them. For example, I'll give you a few cases um, that uh, that I've that I've looked into, and I was trying to think of what Gary Habermas. I think has a, has a, a book on near-death experiences. It's been a while since I've read it. Um, but a, a girl's in the, in, the, in the operation table. She dies on the table. She is, um, uh, she's got a um, eidetic memory, photographic memory. And so when the doctor comes in to see her, she says, who was the person that had the, the whatever color, you know, um, scrubs on? Well, she was out, so she wouldn't know anybody else entered in. And he tells her who it was. And then she says, there's a number on top of the machine. And she gave him the number. And then they went and they looked at the number on top of the machine that was in the room she was in. And it was that exact number. Another one, somebody knew what was happening in the, um, in the waiting room. 
when they had a near-death experience. They should have never have known what had happened in the waiting room, but they knew that. Now, these are documented cases where people go in and document them and talk to people and talk to the doctors and talk to them to document the cases. So, what this means is there's something other than just the physical. There's something when someone dies that they're able to see what's on top of a hospital or they're able to see what's in the next room or they come out and they hover above their bodies. Those are the things that are amazing, not what they see in near-death experiences because that varies. How do you know what was the near-death experience and what was a dream? So, we're not, we're, we're not saying anything about what people see in near-death experiences. I don't think that they hold any kind of authority at all. It's these it's these supernatural things that surround people when they die. Now, I have a friend who dropped dead of a heart attack on a golf course, and I asked him right away, what, what, did, what happened, what did you see when you died? He said, nothing. I saw nothing. And so, you know, there, there are certainly those cases as well. But don't think, Jari, that the near-death experiences are what, that, what you see in hell, because I think that that's connected to what we believe. I don't think we're learning anything about the afterlife by near-death experiences. What we're learning is things that are supernatural and that there is a supernatural from near-death experiences. Okay? So, again, if you have a follow-up question on that, I'd love to take it. Um, we have a question from Pokey. Pokey says, in Psalms 49, 14, and 15, can you give a quick commentary for Christians and even the unsaved who are unsure of the fear of death. Thank you. All right, you betcha. Let's take a look. Thank you for putting the reference in here. I appreciate that. Um, let's go to Psalms 49, 14, and 15. Psalms 49, 14, and 15. All right, Psalms 49, 14, and 15. All right, so I'm going to pull that up on the screen for you, and we'll take a look at it. It says... Um, let me just do this really quick. I want to just kind of go back a little bit here and see if it's got a... All right. So, um, the confidence the confidence of the foolish, the chief musician of Psalms, Korah. All right. So, let's go to verse 14. That was just the heading on the chapter. All right. So, it says here, Like sheep they have laid in the grave... Death shall feed on them, the upright shall have dominion over them in the morning, and their beauty shall be consumed in the grave. For from their dwelling, but God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for he shall receive me. Selah. So, in the Old Testament, the passages in the Old Testament use the, the word sheol as the word grave. And so, it sounds to me here like he's talking about the destruction of the grave in chapter 14. He says, like sheep, they are laid in the grave, okay? And I'm pretty sure that's the word Sheol. Death shall feed on them. The upright shall have dominion over them in the morning, meaning that the upright are going to rise and live, and their beauty shall be consumed in the grave. You, yeah, your beauty leaves you. You, you, you yeah, yeah, you go corrupt. For from the dwelling... Uh, from their dwelling, but God will redeem my soul, the psalmist says, from the power of the grave, and he shall receive me. So, I think that's what he's talking about. So, the power of the grave, so he's talking about when we die, we'll be resurrected, the death or the, the wicked are going to end up being consumed. But let me go ahead and go back to the beginning of this, 
psalm. I just kind of like to read a little bit of the beginning of this. I'm not sure we'll go all the way to verse 14, but let's just see what the sense of it is. Hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak wisdom, and the meditation of my heart shall give understanding. I will incline my ear to the proverb. I will discuss my dark sayings on the harp. Why should I fear in the evil day when the iniquity at my heels surrounds me? Those who trust in their wealth and boast in the multitude of their riches, none of them can by means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him. For a redemption for their soul is costly, and it shall cease forever, that he should continue to live eternally and not see the pit. For he sees wise men die, so even the riches and the rich and the wise die, like the fool and the senseless. A uh, person perishes and leaves their wealth to others. So even the wealthy person is going to leave their wealth to others. The inner thoughts is that their houses will last forever. So they think they're rich. They're going to last forever. Their dwelling places in that generation. They call their lands after their own name. Nevertheless, man, though in honor does not remain, he is like the beast that perishes. This is the way of those who are foolish and of their prosperity who approve their sayings. Selah. Stop and think about it. Like sheep they lay in the grave. So that's talking about the rich thinking and, and putting their trust in riches rather than in God, thinking that they're going to be preserved, but they're going to go to the grave like everybody else and they're going to die like everyone else. All right, Pokey, thank you very much. And uh, if you have a follow-up on that, I appreciate that. I appreciate you sharing um, that passage. Um, that's the way the Old Testament talks about death. Um, it talks about it in the terms of the grave, uh, except for a couple of passages, which um, which talk about, well, Daniel chapter 12, 1 and 2, the resurrection of uh, some to eternal life and some to um, everlasting contempt. All right. Jari uh, says, I think Calvary Chapel is the best church. Um, yeah, I, well, I like Calvary Chapel, but um, I'm not going to say that. I'm just going to say, I'm really privileged to be a part of Calvary Chapel overall. I, I think it's a great thing. All right. Um, I think there are some other really, really good churches. Um, so Gabriel has a follow-up question. Gabriel says, question, follow-up. I was offered to go to another church is the reason why I asked. I've grown up since I was five years old at Calvary, but I kind of feel a calling to try out this church. I was offered to attend. Gabriel, could you tell me what church it is? That's what I would love to hear. Um, let me know what church it is that you're that you're asked to attend. All right. Um, I think that will make a, a huge difference uh, for me, and I'll tell you why. If you can put it in now, we've got about 18 minutes left. So just tell me, you know, or tell me the denomination of the church that it is, one way or another. All right. Um, my answer would change depending on what your church you're talking about, okay? So, um, why don't you go ahead and, and, and give that to me? I also think, Gabriel, you could be mature enough to be able to know whether or not there's a problem with the church that you're going to. But I would want to make sure that you really feel confident that you could identify heresy if you see it, or a church that isn't teaching what is true and real, okay? So, I kind of feel a calling 
to uh, to try out this other church. I don't know what a calling is. God's calling you to try out this other church. Can you put Gabriel in the um, in the comment section what church it is? Before I'm done, I'll look to the very end of this and I'll see if you've put in um, a que- about that before I close things up today, all right? So put it in. I'll go forward to look at it, all right? We have a question from Rosie. Rosie, good to have you here with us. Rosie says, um, in 1 Corinthians 15, 28, says the Son of Man will submit all things to the Father. Isn't Christ going to rule forever? The answer to that is yes. So in Daniel chapter 7, Jesus is given a kingdom and power and dominion forever. Okay? And the all judgment has been committed to the Son, and the Son will rule forever. Let's go ahead and take a look at your passage here. Thank you for putting the reference in there, by the way. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 28. And so, uh, let's see, 1 Corinthians 15, 28. Making sure I got the right verse. All right, let me go ahead and put it on the screen for you here, Rosie. Um, and let me do this. I always, I, I, I always want to try to take a look and see how far back we've got. Um, so it's the last enemy being destroyed, which is death. Um, I feel tempted to read this from verse 20. Let's go to 28. Let's read it. We'll see. We might go back some. It says, um, Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son of Man himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him. And that may be um, all in all. So it doesn't say anything here about the Son of Man not ruling. All things are made subject to him then the Son of Man himself will also be subject to him. So everything is subject to the Son, and the Son becoming the Son, becoming human, makes himself subject to the Father. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are equal. Jesus talked about this clearly. But all it's saying is that the Son is subject to him. It doesn't mean he's handing over things for the Father to rule. His dominion will be a dominion that is forever and ever. And let me go ahead and um, take you over to Daniel chapter 7, and I'll show you. And Jesus quoted this. He said, um, when the high priest Caiaphas asked him if, um, if he was the son of God, Jesus said, he said, I implore you, are you the son of God? He said, uh, I am. But from here on out, you'll see the son of man coming on the clouds of glory. And so, um, this is, he's speaking of the Son of Man coming on the clouds of glory is Daniel chapter 9. This is the Old Testament. And this is why when Caiaphas heard this, he tore his clothes. So it says, I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. Now that's the Father, the Ancient of Days. His garment was white as snow, and his hair was white like wool, pure wool. His throne was a flame of fire. Its wheels were a burning fire, which I've often talked about. God has a, a, a fiery chariot. He's got a you know, a throne that has wheels on it. Uh, that's cool. Um, a fiery stream issued forth from before him, before a thousand thousands ministered to him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court uh, was seated, the books were opened, and I watched because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain. This is the um, Antichrist and his body destroyed to give to the burning flame as the rest of the beast they had dominion was taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Okay? And I was watching in the night vision. And behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. So now you've got in the Old Testament, the Ancient of Days 
and a son of man, meaning, first of all, human coming in the clouds. He came to the Ancient of Days and they brought him near before him. To him was given dominion, that's to rule, and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. Okay, so Jesus said to Caiaphas, from here on out, you will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of glory and given a kingdom and dominion forever. And so he quoted and identified himself with this. Now, for this is why, um, Rosie, um, Jews a lot of times don't have a problem with the idea and the concept of the, of the Trinity, of more than one power in heaven, because they see two powers in heaven. And sometimes in Kabbalah and a few other kind of mystical Judaism kind of things, they'll see more than two powers. They'll see 10 powers or 100 powers because the Bible talks in these kind of ways. Okay? So, yes, um, the Son has made himself subject to the Father, but is equal with the Father. So, in the same way, a wife submits to her husband, and the wife is equal to her husband, but she submits to him. So, I think that's what we're seeing there in that passage. All right, Rosie, thank you very much. I appreciate it, and good to have you here. Uh, so, let's see. Um... <clears throat> We have a question again from Gabriel, um, Christ Church of, okay, so it's Christ Church of Tucson, Colbin Golf Links. Yeah, I don't, I don't know anything about this church. Sorry, I wish that I did. Christ Church of Tucson. I tell you what I will do though, Gabriel, is I'll look it up, okay? So, I'll look up Christ Church of Tucson and um, then I can let you know, um, where, I, I wish I knew what, um, I wish I knew what denomination or group they were with. I'm looking it up really quick to see if I can, uh, to see if I can find it. All right, so, um, okay. Let me go to their website really quick. Christ Church in Tucson. Okay. Um, yeah, I don't know. It, it may be a good, it may be good. So, um, I'll take a look a little bit more. All right, Gabriel. Um, and I'll just encourage you along these lines. Hey, you're... Um, I hope that you're mature enough and solid enough to be able to tell when something is off, is weird. So, when you go into a new church, because there are, there are church cults that present themselves as churches, you want to be on guard and you're listening for certain things. The Bible says that they will know that we are Christians by the love that we have for one another, but we're going to go in and know from the Word of God. So, I don't have any problem, Gabriel, with you visiting any church that is out there I would just be careful to make sure um, that they're teaching what is the truth. Okay? So, um, yeah, if anybody knows what group that church is with, then let us know. You know, I'm not trying to tear down another work or church. I just want to know, is it a, you know, is it a genuine church? Are they, are they really believers? All right? 
that's um, really what I would like to try to figure out. But I say I don't have a problem um, with you going to that church, all right? And um, this is really good for us to, to understand when we visit a church what we're looking for. You're looking for things like the authority of the Scripture. You're looking for them may not making statements about works being some kind of salvation, like the Sabbath or baptism or tongues. Uh, you're, you're looking that a church wouldn't be us for and no more. So when a church has the kind of feeling like we're the only ones really serving God, it's kind of like, really? Your church, just only you or only your denomination. Nobody else is really serving God. So when you hear things like that, those are flags. And when those flags come up, you really ought to take a look at them, all right? So if you're here joining us and you have a question, then write the word question and then write out your question uh, and then go ahead and submit it. Uh, we've reached the end of our questions for today. Let me, um, I wanted to take a look here. I made a note a while back of some of the questions that we've gotten. Let me see if I can find that note. Uh, because we're open for it, you got a question, you really want your question answered, uh, we still have eight minutes and uh, you can go ahead and do that. Um, I'll talk some about, unless I can find that, questions for Q&A. Um, all right. Um, yeah, so we've already done, we've already done that one. All right. Uh, so uh, tonight we have a service at uh, six o'clock. Uh, we'll be teaching out of the book of Acts. We're in Acts chapter 10, and I love this section. It's where God begins to break away. He begins to make the church um, diverse. Up to this point in the book of Acts, up to chapter 10, it's been Jews that have gotten saved and Samaritans who get circumcised, eat kosher, who, who are, are, are very much like, like Jews, but they've gotten saved, but they're different. And now the Gentiles are going to get saved. And, and I love the, the guy that represents this. I just think there's so many good things about the guy who represents it. So we'll be talking about the promises in the Old Testament that all the nations on the earth are going to be blessed by, by Christianity. And we think about it today, we have the 2.3 billion confessing, confessing Christians on the earth today out of 8 billion people. It's the largest declared religion. So I'm not saying by any means that all of them, the 2.3 billion, are all Christians. I'm just saying that we have more people on the, the planet who say that they are Christians than anything else. So um, uh, we're going to be talking about that tonight when we, when we look at uh, Cornelius and his salvation. Also, we, we're going to uh, compare some of the things that happened to him and the Ethiopian eunuch in the chapter before it. All right. So uh, we have, Gabriel says, follow up, um, the denomination is Calvinist um, for, for what I was told. All right, well, that, that helps. Um, so some of the things you wanna watch out for in Calvinism, there, there, there could be an extreme form of Calvinism and then there could be, well, let's say, let's say a higher and a lower form of Calvinism. So the higher form is the worst kind, okay? The lower is the better kind. So high Calvinism would say that everything is determined. It's a radical end of determination that nothing, every, that God's determined at all. Everything that's ever been done, including 
any sin, any any struggle, any anything, any evil. God determined Hitler. God determined all of those things. Um, that's problematic to me because in Calvinism also, the high Calvinism, they believe that there's limited atonement, that Jesus only died <clears throat> for the, the those who he chose before the foundations of the world and that salvation was not offered to everybody and that people are going to be punished when they can't get saved. They can't get saved and so they're going to end up being punished. So to me, there's all kinds of problematic things. Um, Calvinists are Christians and we don't throw them out of the kingdom of God. I think there's some pro there's, there's problems with extreme Calvinism and Calvinism today, for the most part, is that extreme Calvinism. I'm not saying this church is because this church might not be. So um, Craig Kokel, who's a friend of mine who wrote the book Tactics, uh, is a Calvinist. And he is a softer Calvinist. He doesn't take the hard lines that a lot, of, a lot of other guys do. Like he talks about total depravity. And a Calvinist will say total depravity is that I'm just a, I'm a horrible person that can't be saved. And I don't have the possibility to believe in Christ. Where someone who's not a Calvinist is going to believe that we all have an opportunity to be able to receive him. And invite him into our lives and receive him. And that everyone could be saved. But because you're totally depraved, a Calvinist will believe that you have to be given the power to be able to call on his name before you can do that. So what Craig Kokel says instead is that if you're tempted a hundred times to have a lustful thought, sooner or later you're going to give into it. And that's total depravity. So that I can go, yeah, I agree with that. We, we are going to give into sin. We're going to be tempted. We're going to give in to sin. But that doesn't have anything to do with my salvation. That doesn't have anything to do with whether or not God chose me or rejected me and I can or cannot be saved, which is what Calvinists say. So those are just some of the, the problematic areas with Calvinism. Um, if you're interested more in it, exactly what it says, then I would say take, take, take some time to look up Leighton Flowers, Soteriology 101, on YouTube or go to his um, webpage and just go ahead and you know peruse some of the, the videos that he has there. So Leighton Flowers used to be a Calvinist. He's no longer a Calvinist and he spends time talking about some of the things that Calvinists believe. And um, Gabriel, again, I think that you are, you can be strong enough as a Christian to go and look and see, um, are these things biblical? All right. So thank you very much, Gabriel, for letting me know that. All right, we have a question from Tammy. Uh, Tammy says, um, are Mormons Christians? No, not even close. Um, Joseph Smith is the one who started it. Um, he said that God told him that all the Christian churches are anathema and that they were to start their own thing. So they started their own thing and Christian churches were anathema, but now they want to be seen as just another denomination. So they say they're serving the same Jesus that we're serving. But they believe that Elohim was a normal man on another planet, that he lived his life well and he progressed to be God, and that if you live your life well, you can progress to be God as well. They say Jesus is God, but they believe because he progressed as a spirit being to being God. So they're going to use terminology. I believe Jesus died on the cross for me. I believe that he, I, I'm saved. But when you go back into what they believe and teach, it's radically different. Um, so, no, um, 
Mormons are not Christians. They are a cult. And they're a cult that comes back to Joseph Smith who took other people's wives for his own. Um, that was, um, he, that, that was, he twisted scripture. He added to scripture. Okay. So there's, um, there, there's a lot of information. They're going to want you to believe today. They're trying, at first it was Christians are anathema. Um, but now they're trying to become like, um, they were trying to become Christians. All right. So we're, we're at the end of our time now. Good to have you guys here. Um, stay close to Jesus. All right. Walk in the spirit and you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. Um, take responsibility for your sins. Confess them to God. Allow God to forgive you, strengthen you, and that you can walk in him. May He be, you be used by him, filled with the spirit. May you find yourself drawing closer to him each day by the inner man being renewed day by day. All right. Um, God bless you guys. Love you. We'll see you later on. I'm out and uh, we can uh, talk about these things a little bit later on. All right. We'll have another one, Lord willing, another Q&A um, on this, this coming up Wednesday night. All right. God bless you guys. Love you. We'll see you later on.